Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 7th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding major appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. On Wednesday, California's high court heard argument in a constitutional case that's attracted a good bit of attention and which pits a union of Los Angeles sheriff's deputies against the sheriff's department and against county prosecutors. The deputies are hoping to block a policy proposed by the sheriff's department that would allow the department to share with prosecutors a list of deputies with incidents of misconduct on their records. By sharing such a list, the department hopes to ensure compliance with Brady v. Maryland, touchstone of federal criminal jurisprudence, which requires prosecutors to share with defendants any exculpatory evidence the prosecutors have access to. And where law enforcement officers are involved, such exculpatory evidence may well include past officer misconduct that defendants could introduce at trial to undermine the credibility, say, of a testifying officer. By sharing its Brady list, the sheriff's department argues it's simply making sure prosecutors know whether in a given case they're relying on an officer whose file might include the sort of impeachment evidence that Brady obligates prosecutors to turn over to defendants. But the deputies also argue that Brady lists can be overbroad and include deputies whose misconduct is fairly trivial, so they argue advertising to the DA's office such deputies as bad apples is unfair. On the other side, the department, the DA, LA County, and the attorney general argue that Brady, as the federal rule, trumps the state's pitches regime, and so if the sharing of Brady lists is necessary to make sure California's law enforcement bodies uphold their constitutional duty to provide defendants with exculpatory evidence, then the practice is permissible even if seemingly in conflict with pitches. Also, more practically, those parties argue that without the foreknowledge provided by Brady lists, prosecutors will be forced to file pitches motions in every case when an officer's credibility is implicated, something that could waste judicial resources. Wednesday's argument was lively, and justices voiced some divergent thoughts. The chief repeatedly voiced the view that long-standing pitches procedures have worked adequately, so why change them? Justice Liu was more skeptical and did not seem to credit the argument that law enforcement agencies must sit on Brady material they know about, waiting to see if attorneys request it from the court. Happy to welcome on today's show two attorneys who were before the court on Wednesday, as well as the attorney who brought the original underlying suit here. First, I'll speak with Jeffrey Sheldon, a partner from Liebert Cassidy Whitmore, who argued on behalf of the Sheriff's Department in the County of L.A. Then we'll hear from two attorneys on the side of the deputies, Judy Posner from Benedon and Serlin, who gave argument Wednesday and Elizabeth Gibbons from the Gibbons firm, who has represented the deputies since filing the original case in L.A. Superior Court. Before bringing on our guests, let me remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of this podcast. It's very simple to claim. Once you've listened to the episode, just go to dailyjournal.com, go through our podcast library, find this episode. There you should find a link to a short true-false test. Once you've taken that and rendered the relatively modest fee, one hour of California CLE credit is yours. Okay, Jeffrey Sheldon is a partner with Liebert Cassidy Whitmore in Los Angeles. He argued on behalf of the county entities in this case on Wednesday and is here to explain why the sharing of Brady lists by California law enforcement agencies is permissible. Jeffrey, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So it seems like a core puzzle in this case and and one that uh, the different sides and maybe the different justices might be sort of trying to piece together a bit differently is just how these two legal regimes interact, the the Brady and the the Pitchess regimes. On the one hand, you have Brady, a U.S. Supreme Court rule requiring prosecutors to to give to defendants uh, evidence that might be favorable to their defense. That's an affirmative duty. Prosecutors don't have to wait for a request from defendants to to make sure they tender that exculpatory evidence. And then in California, you have the Pitchess ruling and and, and statutes, which have been on the books for, for several decades, which 
you'll put more of a burden on defendants to, to make a motion to get that sort of evidence if it's being pulled from law enforcement officer personnel files. You know, so it sort of seems like different conceptualizations can be made that those two regimes are fully harmonious, that Pitches is just sort of the implementation of Brady in California. But also you can see them as being sort of intention where Brady puts you know, sort of more of the burden on prosecutors. Pitches seems to put a bit more on defendants. I guess, you know, how do you conceptualize um, how those two regimes uh, uh, intersect? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I would characterize Brady as more of a self-executing duty on behalf of the prosecution, uh, meaning that if there's information that rises to the level of Brady material, that the prosecution, which uh, I believe incorporates both the law enforcement organization as part of the prosecution team, as well as the prosecutor, him or herself, if, if it rises to the level of Brady, then it, it must be disclosed by the prosecutor without request. And under the Brady line of cases, the prosecutor has a duty to search out, uh, look for, analyze, and then uh, disclose to the criminal defense attorney the existence of the Brady material. Pitches, on the other hand, is more, it's not self-executing in that there is a mechanism put in place, a procedural mechanism, but to gain access to what is in a peace officer's personnel file, the moving party, whether they be a prosecutor or a criminal defendant, needs to establish good cause. And so there is some level of evidence needed, and and the the court yesterday, and and the case law bears this out as well, uh, you know, did remark that the bar is low, but there is still a bar. Uh, And that's, I think, the distinction between Pitches and Brady. If it's Brady material under the Brady line of cases, that's self-executing. There is no bar. The criminal defendant is entitled to it, whereas under Pitches, Someone needs to make a showing of good cause before there is an in-camera inspection and and possible disclosure uh, to the criminal defendant. Yeah. So, I mean, the way you describe it, it it sort of does sound like there's a a decent amount of tension there. If if Brady is saying everything that's exculpatory, and you can correct me if if I mischaracterize what sort of rises – what amounts to Brady material. But if the burden is on prosecutors to find and, and tender over all this evidence and then Pitches puts the burden on defendants to sort of seek it out, you know, isn't there some, some conflict there? I think there definitely is some conflict. Um, both both uh, schemes were intended to comply with one another. Well, I, I can at least say that from Pitches's, uh perspective. The California legislature intended that to complement Brady and preserve officer privacy rights at the same time. I don't know that uh, the Brady line of cases really has given much thought to the fact that California is one of a a few jurisdictions that has uh, a legislative scheme like this that grants extra confidentiality to peace officer personnel records and then has a motion mechanism to gain access. But, But fundamentally, Brady, you know, is in some senses narrower in that what constitutes Brady material is either exculpatory or or impeachment evidence, but only material evidence. And what that means under Brady is, would it change the outcome of the the case? Under Pitches, 
the statutes and the case law interpreting it use the term material, but it's more of um, a meaning of relevancy. But again, I think the distinction between the two is if something is material under Brady, that needs to be turned over on constitutional grounds to the criminal defendant, whether there's a request for it or not, whereas under Pitchess, there is this procedural mechanism to look into an officer's file and, and a criminal defendant can theoretically gain access to more information than it could under Brady, but it still has to meet this good cause uh, threshold. And so there is some type of bar to it because of that reason. Okay, let's um, ground some of this conversation in, in the facts of the case now before the court. So the, the Sheriff's Department, whom you're representing, so tell me a bit about the practice that it, that it proposed. It sounds, to describe it in brief, to be, okay, we are aware of certain deputies that might have Brady material in their personnel records, say perhaps um, they have in the past falsified a search warrant or used excessive force. We're going to go ahead and proactively just share that list of names with with prosecutors so they know in a given case, uh, I might call this officer, but I see his name on this list, so I I need to make sure I see what what potential impeachment evidence there is in his file, and so I'll seek that with the pitches motion. Um, Is that roughly the the procedure? Uh, Roughly. I think think what was happening before the development of the list was that it was done on more of an ad hoc basis. There would be a discussion between the prosecutor and the sheriff's department as to the involved deputies, and there would be a discussion as to whether any of them had Brady material that the prosecutor should be aware of, and and sort of there would be a yes, and that would trigger the filing of a pitches motion. Uh, no no disclosure of what was in the file, but just this this individual may have Brady material in their file. Then in the attorney general, based on the Johnson decision, wrote an opinion letter which seems to have authorized the practice utilized by the San Francisco Police Department and the San Francisco DA's office. And in that case, they developed proactively uh, because of this, I think, in large part to the size of the department, I think, to ease their administrative burdens. They proactively developed a list, they analyzed the personnel files of officers, determined what they believe were individuals who had Brady materials in their file, compiled a list, transmitted that to the DA, and the DA would then use that list uh, to further their Brady compliance. The Attorney General noted that in the Johnson case, the Supreme Court said that that procedure was a laudable one. And based on that uh, and other authorities, the Attorney General authored an opinion letter uh, that said the creation of lists and transmittal of them to prosecuting agencies was fine, and that's what the the Los Angeles County Sheriff's did. It basically followed the opinion letter of the Attorney General. And that was, uh, and before actually implementing or transmitting this list to the Los Angeles County DA's office, it notified the affected officers, that their names were identified, they were on the list, and they could object if they wanted to, and that triggered the um, lawsuit seeking the injunction that led to the, the case that we're involved in now. Their their union brought the lawsuit. Yeah, I wanted to um, 
to reference that Johnson case, it seems like a pretty interesting quirk of this appeal that the policy the Supreme Court will now decide its legality has already been before the court sort of. And as you said, and I think it is essentially in, in dicta, the court said this sharing of lists is, is laudable. You know, even if it isn't sort of in the controlling piece of that opinion, it seems like it would give some hint as to how the justices might be feeling about this information sharing practice. But I guess what was different about Johnson that made it such that that um, commendation of the solicitoring practices is not really on point. It was the 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 practice here wasn't actually before the court there. That... Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It, it was um, it was part of the fact pattern. I think it, personally, I think it was an indispensable part of the fact pattern that led to the Johnson court analyzing that case and coming up with a holding that it did. But it wasn't a central question. It was not put before it the question of is the creation of a Brady list. And then the transmittal of that list to the prosecuting agency, is that in compliance with the Pitches statutes and or Brady and its progeny or not? That wasn't the direct question being asked. What was being asked in that case was whether the prosecutor had the right to, independent of the Pitches statutes, view the personnel files of officers because Brady compelled it. And what the Johnson court held is no. Um, the pitches statutes in that context, and I think it's very important that in that context, there was a Brady alert in fact made. But the court said in that context, um, the prosecutor does not have an obligation under Brady to actually access the files. It can uh, either file a pitches motion itself or tell the criminal defendant that it received a Brady alert from the San Francisco Police Department and the criminal defendant can go file a pitches motion him or herself. So uh, it really just wasn't an issue squarely before the court. I think it was uh, a very important fact in the fact pat pattern before the court in the Johnson case, but because it wasn't expressly on the court's plate to decide, it did not do so in that case. Okay, so it's saying law enforcement agencies can't just open up these personnel records and show them to prosecutors. Maybe they can let prosecutors know there's something they might want to file a pitches motion about, but we're not going to rule on that in this case because it's not centrally before us. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay, and then here then you know, the, the court will decide whether that uh, sort of less invasive procedure, just the the alert or the sharing of lists, so how invasive it is is certainly a point of contention here. Um, what, what's your main argument for for why the sharing of Brady lists or uh, alerts is uh, is permissible? And you can also let me know if there's a, a meaningful distinction between law enforcement agencies sharing lists or just giving sort of heads up alerts to prosecutors. Right. Um, I'll answer the second question first. I don't think there's really a meaningful distinction between the sharing of a list or a making a Brady alert. Uh, one is done on a case-by-case -case basis, um, and the other is done, you know, all at once for administrative convenience more more than anything else. The the trial court in our case did find the distinction exists, though, and I, and I should note that. And, and that was because, in the court's view, there is no Brady obligation, no, no obligation on behalf of either the prosecutor or the law enforcement agency to comply with Brady unless there is a pending case. 
And for that reason, it did distinguish uh, between sending a list, an entire list, uh, including names of officers who might not be involved in a particular prosecution, to a district attorney's office versus doing it on a on a case by case basis. And so, in our case, in the Alad's case, the trial court said, "Well, a Brady alert can be made. You, uh, the department could not do it as a mass list." and it could only do it for the officers involved in a pending case. One of the issues that we argued yesterday was that there really shouldn't be a distinction there, but I, I do understand the trial court's analysis in that regard, and, and it is not unreasonable, in my opinion. As to the first question you asked there, which is what are our, our kind of main arguments as far as why either Brady Alerts or LIS can be provided from the law enforcement agency to prosecutors, I would say there's really two reasons. One is a matter of legislative intent, that the Pitches statutes were meant to uh, complement Brady and its progeny, not be in conflict with it. And there is no uh, legislative history or statutory text which suggests that the legislature ever intended to have the Pitches statutes block a Brady alert or a Brady list from being transmitted. The second argument would be, even if there were such an intent on the California legislature's part, uh, Brady uh, would prohibit that uh, because of the importance of uh, the due process right to a fair trial, that under the Supremacy Clause, Brady would, in essence, trump uh, pitches, and the disclosure would have to be made, the alert would have to be made, because of uh, the importance of Brady, and, and it just overrides the pitches statutes in that scenario. And getting back to the legislative intent portion of this, the the court, uh, the court of appeal in our case, in the ALADS case, came to the holding it did in large part on a on a line of cases, um, the Copley Press case involving San Diego County, Long Beach Peace Officers Association case, and the California peace officers in standard and training case, which all held that a peace officer's name, when connected to discipline, is itself confidential. But all those cases, as I pointed out yesterday and, and other amici pointed out in their briefs as well, were all Public Records Act cases, and they did not involve at all whether a Brady alert or Brady list can or should be transmitted from one member of the prosecution team to the other. You know, one um, sort of central worry, it seems to me, on on the part of your side of this case is that if the court comes down and says these lists or alerts are, are impermissible, the personnel record information and you know, if it's only you know, names can only be shared after a, a pitches motion comes and after a court order is granted. You know, the worry would be there could be exculpatory evidence on file in a law enforcement agency, and it just wouldn't be discovered. A prosecution would then conclude, perhaps with a conviction, and then down the line. Maybe later it comes out that there was some pretty clear Brady material on file, and just the requisite motion wasn't filed, it wasn't found, and then the conviction is overturned. I guess on the other side, the argument is we've had this pitches process for a long time. It has worked fine to discover Brady material. So why, I guess, describe to me the situation where there is material 
on file that, that wouldn't be discovered since you do have the pitch motion process that, that can be used to discover that stuff? Well, the first thing I would point out would be until the Court of Appeal issued its decision in our case, uh, Brady alerts were allowed. ALADS was the first case that said uh, it actually violates the pitches statutes in, their, in that court's view to allow a Brady alert at all. And so the concept of Brady alerts was used in connection with the pitches statutes. For example, many pitches, uh, for a pitches motion to succeed, it needs to be filed along with either a declaration or an affidavit establishing good cause. And there is a line of, or there's at least a case, a case Serrano versus Superior Court, that held that simply stating in the declaration or the affidavit that the criminal defendant has received a Brady alert or that the prosecutor received a Brady alert from the law enforcement agency, that alone establishes good cause. Absent that Brady alert, the case law under Pitches is such that there needs to be a showing a, a specific factual scenario establishing officer misconduct. And generally speaking, the criminal defense attorney doesn't necessarily know what's in an officer's file. Uh, they don't necessarily know which officers were involved in the case. Uh, for example, they may know who the arresting officer was, but they don't know that another officer was uh, on scene and collecting material evidence or something of that nature. And so they may not have all the information needed to include in the declaration to support a finding of good cause, which then triggers the trial court to conduct an in-camera inspection of the officer's personnel file. Uh, and it's not just the personnel file, I would add. It's related internal affairs investigations and things of that nature, which would identify the uh, misconduct. That's, generally speaking, where the pitches statutes might leave uh, Brady material a little bit short. I think your other question was, what types of you know, misconduct uh, might not arise in the context of Brady, and I would think uh, racial profiling type uh, information may not be discovered through a pitches motion necessarily, but it really would depend on the fact pattern that the criminal defendant is involved in for me to really sure. opine on that one. I just want to get to a couple of points about exchanges at, at oral argument. I think maybe the, the most skeptical of the justices to um, the sharing policy was the chief, um, who also suggested something of a, a compromise approach. She said maybe a, a better way to get this information shared but also still ensure its confidentiality would be to just give it to courts directly. She also mentioned that wasn't really part of the briefing, so I'm not sure if the question took you by surprise at all, but um, <clears throat> did you have, do you have any thoughts on, on that approach? Would that be sort of satisfactory to ensure um, Brady material getting out, do you think? Um, it, it might be, and it was not in the briefing. So yes, it did catch us all, I think, a little bit of surprise. But my response to that was, um, number one, I, it's not a procedure that's authorized by, authorized by the pitches statutes. And so it would need a legislative fix, if you will, uh, for, for that to occur. Secondly, it it, it, I think, inappropriately discharges the duty of the prosecutor. The prosecutor is the one who has the primary duty under 
Brady to make the disclosure of uh, either exculpatory or impeachment evidence to the criminal defendant, not the court. And it seems to me as that approach kind of shifts the burden from the prosecution to the courts. And the courts, I just don't think, are as uh, without the assistance of the prosecutor and the criminal defendant, at least, in the position to make that determination as to what is truly material, which officers are truly material to a, a particular prosecution. And so while it's, I think it is a, a creative idea that the Chief Justice had, um, I don't think it could be implemented without a change to the pitches statutes themselves, and I'm not sure even there that it would be constitutional because really it's the prosecution team that has this burden under Brady, not not the court system. On the other side, it seemed like Justice Liu was uh, probably the most skeptical about forbidding this sort of information sharing. He sort of seemed to be suggesting that, you know, the law conceives of, of law enforcement agencies and prosecutors as, as sort of, you know, on one team as almost a, a unitary type entity prosecuting and, and trying to convict folks um, that have committed crimes on behalf of the people. And so if law enforcement has some information that could be used as Brady material, it's sort of imputed that the, the prosecutors also know it. And so there really just shouldn't be much of a barrier between the, the two entities and, and ruling that you know you can't give the prosecutors a heads up as to some Brady material that might be discoverable would just sort of kind of contravene that conception of the two entities as, as more like one. And Chris, what you thought about uh, his argument either on, on that score or on, he made some other points as to why this would be a seemingly a pretty permissible uh, approach. Well, um, that that is actually the position that we took, and it's, I believe, supported by the relevant case law. Uh, N. Ray Brown, which is a California Supreme Court case, there's a number of federal cases which, in essence, all state several important concepts that both, one of them is that the prosecution and the law enforcement agency are part of a prosecution team, that the information that's in the possession of the police or the law enforcement agency uh, is imputed to the prosecutor, whether the prosecutor knows about it or not, for purposes of Brady. And so, as I mentioned earlier, our, one of our two arguments, one was uh, legislative intent, but the other was Brady compels the use of Brady alerts uh, because because of this team concept that Judge Liu recognized. And the the mere fact here is that prosecutors have this duty under Brady. It's pretty well established under the case law. Um, and, that, and that the information that's in the possession of the law enforcement agency, uh, the the, the cases actually say the prosecutor must search out, look for, and disclose that information. And so having a holding that says there can be no Brady alert or even a discussion, really, um, the, the ALADS case, the Court of Appeal decision in, in our case, really would prohibit the law enforcement agency from responding to a prosecutor's inquiry as to whether uh, you know a particular involved officer has Brady material in their file or not. And as it stands right now, the, under the Court of Appeals decision, the law enforcement agency, for example, the Sheriff's Department in our case, would have to say, I can't answer that question for you. You need to go file a pitches motion. And 
we believe that's just contrary to Brady and its uh, progeny. One other point about you know, the sort of the same team nature of the law enforcement and, and prosecutors, I, I think this point was also referenced by the chief at argument. It seems like there's a unique alignment of of the parties in this case. Oftentimes in, in criminal justice type appeals, you have law enforcement on one side and defense on the other. But you know, a lot of the parties are aligned on the side of sharing this information. The law enforcement agencies want to share it. Prosecutors want it. Certainly you know, defense attorneys would like the information to be shared. You know, it's... It, does it strike you also as a as a unique alignment of of the various entities here? Yes, I uh, would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, I would add the the ACLU was uh, submitted an amicus brief in in the sheriff's department's support, and you know, generally speaking, the ACLU has not been you know it has litigation against the sheriff's department in other contexts, but on this we have. You know, our client, the Sheriff's Department in the County of Los Angeles, we have district attorney groups, we have public defender groups, and the ACLU and a, and a, a host of others, uh, all kind of in support of this need, you know, the, to transmit this little bit of information. It's not a huge ask uh, that we were making here. It's simply an alert. This officer involved in this case may have Brady material in their file not what's in the file or access to the actual records. Um, and all of those organizations seem to have agreed with us on this. And then on the other side, we have the union. Or, and I think there were at least one amicus, amicus brief in support of the union by another police union. But they seem to be on one side. We all seem to be on the other. And I, I think fundamentally, I think all the folks on our side of the line understand that this is a – this is an important constitutional obligation that's that law enforcement has, and it's shared by both members of this team. And therefore, Brady alerts just just need to happen. It has to be part of the system. Okay, just one last one. You know, do you have any sort of takeaway thoughts um, from after the argument yesterday? Sometimes, of course, you can have a good sense of what way the court might be leaning. And I'm certainly not asking you to hazard a, a forecast, but it seemed like yesterday's argument. You know, there might have been some division on the bench as to the way they might be feeling about this case yeah there there definitely was and there were a lot of very good questions asked and and i think it was remarked several times during the argument that this is this is a complicated scenario uh, because we do have you know this copy line of cases which have held that names of peace officers when connected to discipline are confidential at the same time we have these very important brady disclosure obligations that exist under uh, constitutional law, and there's tension there, no doubt about it. But I think at the end of the day, you know, Brady alerts the sharing of of, of at least information and to the effect that a that a particular officer may have Brady material in their file has occurred. It's been a necessary component of the process. It best assures compliance with Brady and the obligations that flow from it. And until we had the ALADS case, the, the Court of Appeal decision in this case, that was all happening. And now it can't happen with the Court of Appeals case. And so it it has created this tension. I think my read of the bench, it's you know, it's very dangerous and hard to do. But I think more of the justices saw the fact that, you know, Brady is is the supreme law of the land here that uh, this is an important obligation. It's a pretty narrow 
exchange of information, all things considered. And therefore, if there is tension between the two, um, Brady, uh, this Brady alert needs to keep happening. And whether they analyze it in the context of uh, legislative intent or the supremacy of Brady over Pitches, I'm not sure how they're going to come out on that. But I do think the ultimate question uh, is going to be decided that Brady alerts just need to continue happening. We'll certainly find out here in the next uh, couple of months. Jeffrey Sheldon, partner with Liebert, Cassidy Whitmore in Los Angeles. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Brian. Before we bring on our next guest, I'd like to remind you just one more time that listeners of this podcast can easily receive California CLE credit for having listened to the show. It's a good way to help you catch up with your CLE requirements and also to help us continue to offer this show outside of our usual paywall. Here's what you do. You go to dailyjournal.com, find this episode in our podcast library, click on a short true-false test that once you've taken and remitted a modest fee, entitles you to one hour of California CLE credit. Okay, happy to welcome on to the show now two attorneys who have argued that the sharing of Brady lists violates long-standing California law, and moreover, it's not necessary for the state to keep its Brady versus Maryland duty. First, let me welcome Elizabeth Gibbons from the Gibbons firm in Los Angeles, who brought the underlying suit. Ms. Gibbons, welcome on to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And we have Judy Posner from Benadon and Serlin in Woodland Hills, who uh, argued the case before the California Supreme Court yesterday. Uh, Ms. Posner, welcome on to the show. Thank you for having me as well. Okay, so as I just spoke about with with Jeffrey Sheldon, uh, a very central piece of this case is just how the court might conceive of how Pitches and and Brady interact, you know, whether harmoniously, perhaps altogether harmoniously, or perhaps um, in more tension with some more conflict. Judy, could I ask you first, and Elizabeth, feel free to jump in too, how you sort of conceive of of these two intersecting uh, legal regimes? Absolutely. I I think that Brady and Pitches work together and in tandem. Um, I think that's what the the courts have said over the course of many years. And I think this case really presents no exception to that tandem operation where following the Pitches statutes facilitates Brady compliance. Um, so then... The 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 pitches motion the, the the pitches statutes are in your view really just the application the implementation of that federal rule and there's you say really no conflict between the the two uh, regimes Judy right because Brady established the right to certain information for the defense but it didn't implement uh, procedures for the defense getting such information and in California with respect to peace officer personnel records, the procedure the legislature has come up with is embodied in the Pitches statute. Uh, Elizabeth, do you have uh, thoughts on, on Brady and Pitches intersecting here in this case too? Sure. I My my thought on it is that they, the reason that they work together is as Judy said, Pitches implements Brady. Uh, Brady is a, a concept of, of fair procedure and essentially providing information to the 
defense that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And the reason that pitches worked is because it gives the defense access to information that they, based on their analysis of their case, uh, which is based on, you know, conversations with the defendant that in almost most, well, I'll say in most cases, uh, the prosecution doesn't have. They certainly don't have the conversations to the degree and, and to the um, point focused on a defense as opposed to a police interview with the defendant in the case. And therefore, the defense in the case has a different perspective and a different goal in mind when they're trying to determine if there's information in a personnel file that might help them achieve the goal of uh, protecting their clients' rights. I don't think that that's something that Brady gives any direction as to how that's supposed to happen. And the legislature did create that process through the pitches process. If I could just uh, push back slightly here. You know, it, it does seem like Brady puts primarily a burden on the prosecution to, to find and tender over this uh, exculpatory evidence. And then Pitches does seem to more so place a burden on, on the defense to request it, at least if it's coming from you know, police personnel files. So you know, why, Judy, is, is that not a bit of a conflict, that the burden seems to be uh, on different parties in the, in the different regimes? Well, I think part of what we need to look at in response to that is that Brady is not the vehicle for discovery in a criminal case. Brady talks about information that the prosecution has and then needs to give to the defense. And Pitches, on the other hand, is a vehicle for criminal discovery. So as Elizabeth was just referring to, Pitches actually opens the door for the defendant to um, seek discovery on peace officer, peace officer personnel records um, when, when there, you know, is a question that would be relevant to the defendant's case. So I think there's not a tension because the, the, the Brady rule and the Pitches statutes, in a way, while they work together, they, they do protect separate rights. Mm -hmm. And so when we say Pitches is facilitating Brady, I think, you know, that's in part recognizing that Pitches is a tool for discovery that is in fact opening up information to defendants that they otherwise didn't have before Pitches and then the Pitches statutes existed. Yeah, that, that seems to be an important thing to keep in mind here is that while these um, you know, cases and, and regimes are mentioned often together, they have different fundamental aims with Brady more concerned with um, getting information to defendants and Pitches, as I understand it at least, is you know, principally concerned with preserving confidentiality of, of law enforcement personnel records. Is that fair to say, uh, Elizabeth? No, I, I don't think that that is fair to say. I think that the legislature, when they created the Pitches statutes, specifically set out to, to create a balance between the uh, confidentiality rights of the police officers and the specific uh, due process rights of defendants. 
this was not just to protect police officers. It was to address the exact issue that we have right here, which is where is the line between what we have, what the prosecution has to give under Brady and what the police officers are entitled to protection through the California constitutional right of privacy. So both have constitutional rights at issue. And that's why the legislature stepped in to create the balance, to set the balance. And so it is not designed to help one side or the other. Instead, it's supposed to help both and, you know, create the procedure that balances those two interests. Okay. Then, Elizabeth, let me ask you, you brought the original underlying case. So describe to me the the nature of the proposed practice that the Sheriff's Department was seeking to undertake. Um, as I understand it, it was compiling a list and then tendering a list to prosecutors. And, and what is the, is the main argument as to why um, that is not permissible? Okay. So what the Sheriff's Department proposed, they sent a letter to in the neighborhood of three to 500 deputy sheriffs at all ranks, um, not just line deputies, but sergeants, lieutenants, I believe captains were also included in the list. And the list was compiled by the department uh, based on the department's review of what they considered to be uh, founded uh, investigations of alleged misconduct for certain categories of misconduct. And then they created a list and they the list was people who had founded allegations of misconduct determined by the department to be founded in certain categories, use of force. Essentially, they fall into use of force or um, uh, truthfulness issues, basically, but they're very broad categories. Then the department's idea was to just send the list to the district attorney with no individualized case pending that the uh, deputy had uh, any potential to testify in. So to me, the biggest problem with the list is that the penal code specifically prohibits the release of information compiling discipline when the names of the disciplined officers are included on that list. And the lists proposed by the sheriff's department and I believe utilized by a number of counties, at least San Francisco, it's my understanding they use a list rather than just a tip. Those lists are by the very language of the statute prohibited. And that was our concern. Our concern, however, was greater than that because the sheriff's letter to the deputies also said we're going to send this list to the DA, and if there's any problem with you testifying, we're going to fire you or we're going to transfer you out of your position. We're going to take disciplinary action against you because you're now on this list we created. So that to us was equally possibly a bigger problem than sending the letter to the DA because that directly conflicts with the Peace Officers Bill of Rights that says, uh, no peace officer in the state of California can be disciplined simply because their name is on a Brady list. But in our case, I don't know what happened in San Francisco 
five years ago when they developed their list, whether there was some negotiation between the union and the um, department about how the list would be created or whose name would be on the list or how long you stayed on the list or any of those issues. In Los Angeles County, there was no negotiation with the union. It was just, this is what we're going to do. It's a done deal. And by the way, that list is going next week. So that's why, in our case at least, we went to court to stop it because there was no discussion with the department. There was no opportunity to sit down and say, look, is there some way we can work out a middle ground on this? It was the department's way or the highway, and the department's way is a direct violation of the penal code section. You know, you mentioned a, a potential middle ground, and I don't mean to assume that this is a policy that you would find permissible, but it came up a couple of times in argument yesterday whether or not something like an alert as opposed to a, a list being sent might be more okay that if a, an officer was, say, going to testify in a, a prosecution that the sheriff's department um, could say, hey, you know, you might want to file a pitch motion, just giving you a heads up prosecutor. Judy, do you think there's a, a meaningful line to be drawn between sending a list and sending an alert? And do you think the, the court might be inclined to draw that kind of line? Well, the court did seem interested in whether there was any kind of middle ground. And there is well, there is a difference between the list and, and the alert in some respects. But both kind of come down to the department making determinations on its own criteria of what they consider to be material, and it's not necessarily tied to any specific case, which is where the Brady determination of materiality must must rest. So when the department, as Elizabeth described, created a list here, it there wasn't any pending criminal case that would allow it to evaluate the materiality of what it found when it went through the deputy's personnel files. So in either case, the department or the information is based on the department's internal decisions on materiality when those are decisions that rest with the prosecution. So I guess what I would say is the list itself has problems because the department can include whatever categories it wants um, to make its list, um, and it can review the personnel files and make conclusions from them based on its own determinations and its own criteria. And so when the tip or the alert comes off of that list, it's just communicating that same information based on the list that we know was made, you know, all under the criteria and factors set up by a department. And we also know, you know, what criteria there is in Los Angeles, according to the sheriff's department's 
list here could be different from another law enforcement agency that might use different criteria and then different again from a third law enforcement agency that perhaps doesn't want to use a list. So I think when we're talking about lists and alerts, we're running into a problem that Pitches seeks to avoid, which is that different law agencies are um, kind of at their own disposal looking at what they think might be material and making lists and giving out information. Um, and it leads to, uh, you know, different counties and different law enforcement agencies having policies sort of all over the place. And then we have to look at the flip side of that, which says, why are the peace officers afforded less protection in one county versus another? And why are defendants provided more information in one county versus another? And so by defaulting back to pitches, we're using a legislatively established procedure that applies in a uniform way throughout the state. That um, suggests that uh, another middle ground approach, um, I think suggested by the Chief Justice a couple of times, that instead of these lists or alerts being sent to prosecutors, they're sent to judges instead. You suggest that uh, that that wouldn't solve the problem that you mentioned, Judy, that uh, still the original entity sort of creating these lists are individual agencies and they might do so in you know, disparate manners. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, did you have thoughts on, on that? Uh, sort of, it seemed like a potential compromise proposal by the chief to not alert prosecutors but, but judges instead. On its face, the chief justice's suggestion makes sense because under the pitches procedures created by the legislature, the duty of determining materiality to a specific case is rests with the trial judge. And so on its face, giving the information to the trial judge makes some sense, but it doesn't really do anything. Because in a vacuum, telling a trial judge, you know, Officer Smith might have some pitches material in his file. What does the judge do with that? Does the judge on the judge's own motion tell the department, bring the Officer Smith's file and do a in-camera review of the file to make a determination of materiality with no input from the defense as to what the defense is going to be. It's not always, it's perhaps obvious that credibility is going to be an issue. And if the officer lied in the past, you can say to a jury, oh, look, he lied about what time he came to work. He must be lying about here when he testified under oath, uh, you know, that he saw the, the defendant shoot the victim. You know, because he lied before, he must be lying now. Um, those kinds of things are one thing, but but many people end up on these lists because and in the sheriff's department, this actually happens where a wife or a girlfriend says, we had an argument and he pushed me and I don't have any injuries because he didn't push me that hard. And the officer's arrested because of that. And then 
because of the federal gun laws. He has to go to trial in order to keep his job. He goes to trial and is acquitted because there's no evidence that he even pushed the his wife or girlfriend. Even when she comes in and testifies, he did it, doesn't retract. He's acquitted. The sheriff's department will turn around and discipline him, not for pushing the, the wife or the girlfriend, but getting arrested for it. And then he ended up on the list because he was arrested for something he was acquitted for. And I don't think that that in any criminal case is going to affect whether the officer, when he testifies under oath, that he saw the defendant shoot the victim, that he's lying about that. And that's that's the fundamental problem with the lists, is that it doesn't take anything related to the case to get you on the list. So I think that just telling the judge he's on the list doesn't change any of that problem. The problem stems from what it takes to get you on the list, which is overbroad in the sense that not everything that gets you on the list is material to every single prosecution. Elizabeth, if I could push back a little bit. So is that problem not solved by the fact that, as you say, then the next step to, to determine whether the reason an officer or deputy got onto a list is material to a given case if the judge or after a pitch motion is filed, which would come after, you know, a Brady list or alert, that evidence would be reviewed in, in camera, in secret. And then if it turns out, you know, the reason the person's on the list is really immaterial and, and not probative at all, then, okay, it, it wouldn't go into evidence. Jurors wouldn't hear it. It wouldn't become part of the public record. You know, so I guess, can't isn't that problem sort of solvable by this sort of the next piece? Well, we started with the question about whether the Chief Justice's solution of giving the tip to the judge would solve the problem. And the reason I don't think it solves the problem is because it essentially infers that there's no pitches motion being made. And the, the essential function of the pitches motion is for the defense to tie the potential discipline to the actual defense in the case. And that that's the, the line of materiality is, you know, if he's arrested for uh, pushing his, his wife, um, does that mean that he used excessive force when he arrested the suspect? So maybe if, if the, but it's on the defense to articulate why it would be relevant to that particular case. So th that's where I think it falls apart is because you can't have the pitches motion or the in-camera review part of the pitches motion in a vacuum. And in my opinion, in my experience, the tip itself doesn't add anything to the materiality question. Because again, if he's on the list for telling his supervisor 10 years ago, I came in late because I had a flat tire and it was really because he overslept, is that going to be material in every single case? If the, the police officer who wrote the report, all he does is show up, there's a dead body there, there's a guy with a gun in his hand who says, I shot him, or five witnesses say he shot him. And he writes a report documenting that. Is his 
report now going to be considered false just because he told his supervisor 10 years ago or five years ago he had a flat tire? Again, I get that that's, that's what the judge has to consider, but he has to do it in the context of the case. And he needs input from the defense specifically because I don't believe that defense attorneys in criminal cases really want the prosecution or the police department defining their defenses for them. And that's what that process would do. It would make the defendant be reliant on the prosecutor and or the police department to say, here's your defense. I I don't think anybody wants the criminal justice system to turn into that. Uh, Judy, I was curious to ask you how it was trying to, to file your briefs and argue around the fact that the court has at least sort of incidentally referenced this policy in positive terms in that 2015 Johnson case relating to the San Francisco Police Department's policies. They are described as laudable ways to sort of streamline pitches in Brady. Um, did that add a unique element to, to approaching um, arguing against such a policy? Well, I mean, it did only in the sense that I think it required a careful reading of the Johnson opinion, which is the one that um, you're referring to, because I think in that case that Justice Chin said that when he referred to the department there, he said that the department had laudably streamlined Brady Pitches procedures. And so while in the abstract, I think it is laudable to streamline them, I don't think that he was necessarily referring to the specific policy at at issue in that case, because that wasn't an issue before the court. And also, if you looked at that policy as a whole, the policy did provide for the tip from law enforcement to the prosecution, but it also required the prosecution, after receiving the tip, to make a pitches motion on the officer and the Johnson court specifically rejected that part of the policy and said that the prosecution wasn't required to file a pitches motion because it was um, a procedure that was equally available to the defendant. So I think taking the word laudably or laudable as it's transferred from the Johnson opinion of a basis for arguing the court as a whole has sanctioned these types of tips is really a stretch. And that seems to be what the attorney general's office did in the opinion it issued um, not too long after Johnson. And then that seems to be the basis for what the department here in our case has used as justification for its policy. So the word laudable or laudably in Johnson was was really not so troubling because the issue of the tip really wasn't presented to the court in that case and and the policy as a whole was not laudable. And so I think it wasn't until the case that we have now that the court has really had a chance to look at the issue of a tip in relation to the pitches statutes. And if you go back to Johnson's discussion of 
the Pitches statute, it really supports the positions that ALAS has taken in this case. And so I think reading Johnson requires reading much more than the one sentence that used the word laudably. Judy, one other, uh, or one sort of question that it seemed like you got a, a couple of times in, in one worry on the court's mind it seemed to be that if, um, or if this policy is, is disallowed and, and law enforcement agencies can't give heads up to prosecutors that they might want to fi- file pitches motions as to certain potential, say, deputy witnesses, then prosecutors will just to proactively and, 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 um, safeguard or to ensure that all Brady material is found, we'll have to file pitches motions all the time for every potential officer that might be relevant to a case. And that might you know, waste judicial resources and, and, and put before judicial review more personnel files. You know, is that a problem or a reality that you see it happening if um, the court sides with, with you guys? I understand why that question comes up in this this case, but I don't think it's a problem or a reality. I think that we've had the pitches statutes for 40 years, and there haven't been issues of prosecutors or defendants making pitches motions as to every single law enforcement witness. I don't think that's been happening in the last 40 years, and there's certainly no evidence in our record that would support the need for that type of pitches motion as to every witness. There's no evidence in our case that Brady information um, has been suppressed in cases recently because of the pitches statute. And so I, I think that question, while you know, it's an it's an easy one to fall back on for the department. I just don't think there is any evidence or any precedent to suggest that that is happening or that even would happen. I think, and this is along the lines of um, what Elizabeth has talked about, I, I think in a case where an officer um, has testimony that is going to be material and the defense to the charges is something that is going to be dependent on officer credibility. I think in those cases, the defense makes a pitches motion and the process works and has worked. And I certainly in this record we have, have not seen any evidence that would suggest otherwise. Elizabeth, let me ask you one thing that seemed to trouble both, um, at least Justices Cuellar and, and Lou, is that you know, notwithstanding the defendant's capability to file pitches motions and prosecutor's ability to do so, there just would occur situations where law enforcement might have legitimate Brady material on file. And you've spoken about some material in these Brady lists that might not be terribly relevant. But um, Justice Lou said there will certainly be instances where there is very material information that should be provided to defendants and law enforcement will know about it. Prosecutors won't. It, say a pitches motion is, is not filed, the court, if in your view, just has to sort of accept that and and the entities have to stay sort of in their separate corners. Or said you know, that will result in, in convictions eventually being overturned. Do you have 
your thoughts on on that worry, Elizabeth? Yes, I think that again, that's a a surface reaction to the problem. That's a sort of a knee jerk reaction to what could potentially go wrong here. We have been operating again for forty years under a procedure where the burden is on the defendant to determine what type of discipline would be material to their defense. So, and and that's what a pitches motion is, is always about. What type of potential discipline against this officer would be material to my defense in the case. So again, the, the, um, Justice Liu's presumption is that the prosecutor will know better than the defendant what type of discipline would be material to the defense. And I don't think that that's true. If if that was true, we would, for the last 40 years, have seen legitimate prosecutions being overturned because that information wasn't being shared with the with the prosecutor or the defense. We we haven't experienced that phenomenon. It would have already occurred because we're, we've been acting under this procedure for such a long time. So again, the reason why the legislature decided that the burden of materiality was on the defendant and not on the prosecutor and not on the police department and not on the court is because the defendant knows what his defense is going to be. And he doesn't ever have to share the specifics of that with the prosecutor or the police until he puts it on. I mean, if he's got documents, there are some reciprocal discovery requirements. But but generally speaking, the theory of his defense, he doesn't have to share with the prosecutor. And he only has to share it with the court in the context of saying, all right, if my defense, if, you know, considering my defense is going to be this, this type of discipline for the officer that wrote this report or the officer that made this arrest or the officer that made this observation that's documented in the report would be material to my ability to put on my defense. So, again, I think that Justice Liu presumes a greater knowledge of the defense on the part of the prosecution or the police department or the court than the defendant would have. And our criminal justice system doesn't, doesn't work that way. It's adversarial in the sense that the prosecution is supposed to have one view of the case and the defense is supposed to have a different view of the case. And we shouldn't be relying on the other side to make our case for us. So I don't think that, you know, I understand, again, why Justice Liu would ask the question, but I don't believe that there's any reality to support that. And again, you know, we're dealing with a record in this case that was made in response to the Sheriff's Department's threat to release a list of names of disciplined officers. So there was, and it was, you know, an, an application for a temporary restraining order and a preliminary injunction. There was no 
discovery done in this case. And the whole issue about a tip rather than the list never came up until the sheriff's department wrote the order that the judge, that the trial court signed. It was never litigated. So the, the record doesn't have any evidence in it of whether that's actually ever happened or not. But we certainly have had a lot of amicus briefs filed by various different participants in the criminal justice system, none of whom produced any evidence that 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 the pitches process has resulted in the overturning of any legitimate conviction. Okay. Just one one last one. Judy, could I ask you um you know about any sort of concluding or takeaway thoughts you had after argument. It seemed like the Chief Justice and to some extent Justice Corrigan also echoed some of the ideas that uh, Elizabeth just mentioned that we've had the pitches system for several decades now. It's worked sufficiently well. Uh, did he, you get a sense that uh, the court had a you know a decent amount of, of sympathy for your position and for the position of of the deputies? It, it seemed you know to some extent like there was some some differences definitely of opinion and certainly not asking you to, to hazard a forecast, but just your overall thoughts on how the court seemed to be responsive to uh, to the arguments. I, I definitely felt that the court understood well both sides of the argument, and I think the court asked really intelligent questions um, to both sides. I, I was encouraged by the comments and the questions that spoke about the legislature and the existence of the pitches statutes for decades, um, because I do think this case really comes down to the legislature and what the legislature has said in terms of the pitches statutes and the fact that they have worked in our system for so long. And I think it's also, you know, noteworthy to recognize that the legislature recently amended the pitches statutes and did not change them with respect to discovery or disclosure of peace officer personnel records in a criminal case. And so while the statutes have been around for so long, we actually have a recent pronouncement from the legislature that they should remain intact for criminal cases. And so I think it was important that those points came out at the argument yesterday um, in relation to, you know, the department's attempt to collect and gather information from personnel records, from officer discipline, and then, you know, their attempts to disclose that. And so I, I, I was pleased that the concept of the legislature and the pitches statutes was a central theme at the argument yesterday. Okay. Uh, Judy Posner from Benedon and Serlin and Elizabeth Gibbons from the Gibbons Firm. Thanks very much to both of you for being on our show. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Thank you, for- Brian. And that is our show for June 7th, 2019. Thanks one more time to all three of my guests, Jeffrey Sheldon, Elizabeth Gibbons, and Judy Posner. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget that for having listened to this podcast, you're entitled to one hour of California CLE credit. You can get it by going to our website, dailyjournal.com, finding this episode in our podcast library. 
and taking a short true-false test related to the episode. Once you've done that, one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. And I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.